And I would like to invite Alicia and uh, Odan on stage. And we will have our first session, the maintenance session, Unlearning Maintenance. And I will quickly introduce our speakers, leaders of the workshop, protagonists for this session. It has been a great pleasure to also like be in contact before with the two of you and prepare, but also like hand over to you what you are imagining around the unlearning maintenance. And let me quickly introduce the two of you. So Aisha Ganchi is artist educator and academic with a focus on critical pedagogy and uh, she completed her PhD 2016 in London with uh, Tate. And recently um, you came to the Netherlands and you are working now on different projects related and further intensifying projects around critical pedagogy. Hodan Varsame, also based in the Netherlands, um, is an educator, organizer and moderator working on areas of gender, race, class, and citizenship. Um, she is the co-initiator of the Decolonize the Museum, which is a very well-known, meanwhile, uh, initiative in the Netherlands. Um, she has been also initiator of Redmond Collective, an intersectional feminist collective. So please, be our guests. We're so excited to be here. It's a special event, and we're so happy to. You don't need to look at it just now. Oh, okay. Can I kind of see? Are you right to stand? I'm all right to stand. Yeah. Okay, so we're so happy to be here. My name's Hodan. This is Aisha. And we feel like, I feel like it's a very special place and space to be uh, at the moment, and, mm. and a very um, necessary um, conversation that we're going to have and thinking together that we're going to do, and we're very happy to contribute to that from our respective um, experiences and perspectives, um, being people that have been around cultural institutions for a little, for a little while for me, and f in, in terms of art and institutional work for a longer time yeah. for you. And noticing things, um, being uh, uh, people of color, being uh, you know in people from an immigrant background, working class background, and uh, coming into these spaces where we feel um, <laughs> where we've witnessed a definitely lot. witnessed and felt and experienced a lot of things that we feel need to need to change. So we're gonna offer our modest, um, also imperfect uh, insights and perspectives, um, we hope to um, give you some sort of a, some an analytical sort of framework to do the work that you're going to do, um, to give you a little bit of a better grasp, because I think that the things that we're thinking about and talking about today, uh, for many of you, you it's, it, it's a work in progress, you've been doing this work, we've been doing this work. And we hope that for those of you who are longer, sort of, who have been on the way for a bit longer, this presentation or conversation that we're going to have is going to be an affirming um, experience where you feel, hey, you know, uh, it's good to be reminded of those basic sort of principles or ideas or connections. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who are more at the beginning of a journey trying to decolonize your art practice or your work within an institution, we hope to give you clarity and a starting point so that you can feel also affirmed and also feel like, hey, I'm on the right track and I want to keep these connections in mind for the work that I'll be doing and the relationships that I'll be um, forging. Um, yeah, I was just um, going to add, we hope to use our insights to help facilitate dialogue um, because really, whilst we're leading this workshop, the, the, the stuff comes from all of us, it comes from our ideas and, and uh, I hope that we feel, we'll, we give a good enough platform for you to feel encouraged to share because um, all of our ideas are useful and valid. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about um, the workshop titled Unlearning Maintenance, Decolonizing Cultural Institutions from the Bottom Up. Um, it's very much connected to what is, what is discussed in the book and what um, Costco and the people at Costco have been, have been working with, um, which is looking at who's doing what, mm. how are the labor relations and the relations in an organization, how does that uh, reflect 
a colonial legacy or colonial practices, colonial hierarchies, colonial binaries. Exactly. And how do you then? Um, why is it necessary um, to to undo that hierarchy? And what are maybe some ways that you could do that? So we're going to be thinking about that in breakout groups as well. Thinking about what is your specific um, situation in your institutional place or your collective, and how might you, in the next three months, actually take concrete actions to uh, uncover and undo um, colonial hierarchies in your uh, in your organization? So, concretely, how do you relate to your colleagues, and what do they, what type of work do they do, and how is that ra racialized? Um, Can we have the next one? Oh, for me. Uh, uh, before we go into the questions that we'll dive into, I just wanted to say that um, we're very aware that decolonize and uh, diversify and diversity are words that um, are very much buzzwords at the moment in the cultural sector. There is a code of culture that those are sort of guidelines produced by the cultural sector in the Netherlands itself to sort of push cultural institutions to... Um, 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 work towards diversity in different ways in the organizations. I was at uh, this annual con conference of museums a couple of weeks ago, uh, Museum Kennisdag, where the main theme of this sort of, you know, fancy <laughs> um, space uh, conference was diversity. Um, and so there's a lot of people at the moment in big institutions as well as smaller ones, but mainly the huge ones like Rijksmuseum and all these places, art institutions that are um, feeling motivated slash pressured to do to work towards diversity in their content. And what we're talking about in this workshop is how it's very necessary to look at um, labor relations, maintenance, mm -hmm. and how that is connected to decolonization or, or colonialism. So we're saying we need to go beyond content and really look at who's doing what in your organization. Mm -hmm. Just to say, um, we know that this is um, an interesting context to have this conversation in. Um, so some of, the context, some of the questions we'll be thinking about together in the next hour and a half are who does maintenance work in cultural institutions? How and why is this work racialized? And what does this have to do with colonialism? Oh, thank you. We'll be, we'll be using these in a moment. Um, oh yeah, what does decolonizing maintenance in cultural <coughs> institutions look like? What forms does that take? Uh, what can you do in your own institutions and collectives to decolonize racialized labor divisions? And what do these questions have to do with knowledge production in cultural institutions? So these are the questions that we'll be um, coming back to throughout the whole workshop, the next hour and a half. Yeah. So just um, um, with a show of hands, can you tell us who works in a cultural institution? That could be an art school or a museum or a gallery or... <laughs> Reluctant hand raising there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, okay. And who, who is doing work, um, maybe artistic work or cultural work, in a collective, maybe non-institutional, but in a collective? Okay. All right. <laughs> it's no... Um, I'm glad that there are so many people from institutional, institutional settings because that means that there's a will and a willingness and an interest in, in unlearning slash learning. So that's great. Um, but also there's a sizable group, especially on this side, who's not working in an institution mm -hmm. or in a collect non-institutional collective. Can we have some, maybe, does anybody want to maybe share what um, what brought them to the festival, perhaps? Or to the assembly? Yes. Your students. Your students. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Many people. Okay, okay, that explains it. Yeah, okay. All right, cool. Um, yes. Okay, so we would like you to do a, a, a breakdown of uh, who is doing what in terms of race and in terms of type of contract, if that's relevant, in your setting. So if it's correct, you all have one big sheet of paper for your group and you have four differently colored post-its 
Or four um, markers, four different colors markers. Yes. Okay. Do you, are you missing this color? No. Okay. Okay. Cool. So it's a, we're going to improvise. I know it's a bit messy, but we would like you to um, visualize um, who's doing management in your organization or at your school. Mm -hmm. Who's doing the programming or the curation or sort of the content creation for the place that you are working at or doing your yeah, cultural artistic work? And also who's doing the maintenance work? So that's um, who's taking care of the building, who's taking care of the people in terms of their physical needs, food and um, cleaning. Uh, cleaning and you know that type of, who's doing the technical stuff. Um, and we'd like you to do that using those four colors. So two colors you need to choose for race, which is, um, is the person white or of color? If you're not sure, have you heard somebody self-identify as a of a certain race or a certain racial background? Um, so choose a color for white. Yours is easy because you have white post-its. <laughs> and then for people of color. Um, and then the other two colors you can choose to represent a permanent contract or um, an insecure contract. So a temporary contract, is the person outsourced, is not actually working for the organization that you're working for, perhaps? Um, is the person on a, um, from, a, from a temp agency, for example? So two colors for white and of color, and two colors for secure contract and insecure contract. Yes? And then you need to, uh, if you would like to make three circles on your sheet, one to represent management, one to represent programming, and one to represent maintenance. And so it's not really a collaboration that you're doing. You don't need to discuss anything specifically right now with each other, but just put those uh, post-its on the three videos. All right. Okay. Thank you for having a go at that. <laughs> Do the yeah. Yeah. You can. Taylor is clear and fun and cool. So. Okay, but well that, that totally, totally understandable. It's a bit of a. Yes. Yeah. yeah, basically, because we come from a very uh, environment, like I come from uh, Poland, uh, people from Athens, people from Bristol, people from Argentina, and uh, from different countries, there the kind of uh, this, uh, this suggested division in uh, the in color doesn't play such a big yeah, role. Yeah. It's a, you have like basically you have admin white, teachers white, uh, the maintenance white, everybody holds and uh, in my case. And, um, okay. So you know it's uh, yeah. The, there's other structures that are at play within like for example in my context. It's not that much about the race. Uh -huh. uh, because Migrants, illegal migrants, don't really get access to that kind of work. Maintenance in an institution, so yeah. it's more of a class structure that operates yeah. within mm -hmm. institutions and not racial. Okay. Yeah. Were you able to do anything with the type of contract or the type of uh, work? Well, I used to work for a large public museum, and we are all flexibilized yeah. uh, workers. That means we have. We work as freelancers for the state, for the government. Yeah, yes. But everybody, even the director of the Even the directors. That's interesting. That, that's also definitely It's a very different. Yeah. yeah, well, it's very similar also to what's going on in the Netherlands, although the directors often do not have a flexible contract. 
But that's interesting. So the point of this uh, exercise was just to help us visualize the patterns. And we did focus on uh, race and type of contract because that's what's going on in many Western European places. And, um, but definitely it's important to, to, to realize and to know that mm -hmm. other differences do operate in different places. So thanks for, for adding that to the conversation. Um, so I'd like to invite some groups to share the patterns that they have found. Um, this group, perhaps, do you want to share what, what you found? And if, if it's a different type of conclusion or something, that's, if you want to complicate the conversation, that's also fine. Do you want to show us? Do you want to show us your sheet? One of the things that we found is not everybody felt like each person could be identified by each category, or we weren't sure what type of contact somebody had, or how the person identifies. Um, and so the categories made it a little bit of a confusing activity. Uh -huh. But it was also interesting to see how it we also have different uh, occupations and work on different positions. Uh, so instead of concentrating on one institution, we kind of collected uh, uh, experiences uh, from our uh, different perspectives and uh, uh, create this uh, uh, non-existing institution. Okay, uh, an abstraction of yeah. sort of putting together. The, yes, yeah. the collective experience. And are there anything? Uh, and is there anything that stands out in your pattern? In your Charts. One thing that's popping for me, we didn't really discuss, is um, the lack of relationships with those in the maintenance category, so not really understanding what their job positions were, secure or flexible, and having to make assumptions of a, a racialized identity. Like, we, we just didn't know. We had better awareness of um, Management and programming. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That's interesting. The same thing. Yeah. Also with time. Yeah. Time of day. Well, if you work at different times of day, then you might not know if something. Yeah. Yeah. That's super. I mean, coming back to what type of relationship do you have, or even if you have a relationship, that's yeah, that's something very important to do. And how visible people are. Some people are very visible. Some people who are working around the clock are very invisible. Services often outsourced. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. One thing uh, I'm, I'm from Finland, and uh, which one thing which wasn't mentioned here is that, which is a big, maybe big issue in Finland, is the language question because there's a Swedish-speaking minority, which has a different kind of uh, position within the cultural field, and uh, uh, which is in a way they are minority, but in the in a funding-wise, they there's a lot of funding for Swedish-speaking cultural workers and institutions. So it's a kind of, uh, uh, it's not clear question is the, like the, what's the kind of uh, role of the other, kind of how equal is it or it's hard to uh, think about. And also the organization where I'm working, there is a, uh, one uh, project assistant hired uh, with funding which comes from the Swiss by speaking uh, foundation, uh, which is the only people who speak Swedish uh, or they like the language they originally kind of speak. Prime Minister Swedish. So it's, it's a kind of complicated question also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, do you want to share something about your... Mm -hmm. about your do you want to show it? Oh, uh, <laughs> Any thoughts that you want to share? Them? <laughs> <laughs> I think the structure is falling apart. Yeah. It's what we want. I think we were struggling with whether to map bodies or sort of representation of management or maintenance. So this is sort of a, a, a mixture of both. That's why there are so many <laughs> post-it notes on ours. What way do you mean? Do you I mean know? that uh, I think some of you are counting every single individual, oh, okay. uh, where others.
just make mm. one post-it note as a representation of the two mm. bodies, okay. which was also very complex. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's yeah. because some of them were interlinked. Yeah. Yeah. So we spent most time on just trying to map that out. I think we didn't get to discuss process orientation. <laughs> I love it. Good. No, and, and we found out that in this group there are five people from Rotterdam. Coincidence? <laughs> 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 yes, coincidence. We never met before. We meet in So yeah. Is there any anything that you want yeah. to share about your conversation or about this chart? Any thoughts that you want to share? Well, no, I just wanted to say that from my context, I work in Oslo and Norway, it's interesting because it's a state-run institution. Everyone's on permanent contract except from the programming people. There I see the most flexible people there. So that's a different dynamic than what you're just explaining. So maintenance and managerial yeah. staff are both permanent. Permanent. And why do you think that only the programming has flexible contracts? That is to give room for new input and new ideas. Mm -hmm. So that is the most precarious flexibility. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. In my context as well, there's no racial diversity, but uh, it's basically the hierarchy is class. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the same as well. And yeah. I'm the only precarious worker in the <laughs> and which in which group are you at the only flexible double in programming? Do you want to share something about why do you think that situation is Um they don't feel like there's um it's necessary to fund a position that has to do with education. They're like the the, the thing that should take care of itself. Um which institutions are it's in Ireland, it's called a visual. It's it's just because there's no funding. So they're trying to get funding through um, like artists in residence programs. So I'm there as an artist in residence at the moment, but I'm actually doing a job that's like a programming job. It's a structural job. Yeah. yeah. But then that opens up loads of questions and problems because I don't have a long term contract. So I'm like going to intervene in an in infrastructure of an institution that I don't actually am supported by. Um, but, but like all of our maintenance staff, all of our programming staff, all of the management staff, all of the partner contracts. Okay, interesting. Maybe this group, some of which work at Costco and others are at school. We didn't finish yet. It's fine. <laughs> I don't think I finished. We didn't quite get to a data collection point, but we got caught up in um, breaking down Costco and noticing that perhaps, although there's a combination of what I believe are Caucasian precarious labourers, including myself, uh, there's, in terms of people who are contracted, they often come at the middle of the Venn diagram. So it was useful to have the circles overlapping um, because, of course, the maintenance and the programming and the organisation and the management. Our management is, I believe, your land in Vienna. <laughs> but, it's, I mean, it's also shared, no? Um, so. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Does anybody else want to share some thoughts that didn't fit into the exercise, but just thoughts about hierarchies that have um, in your organizations that you want to share? Yeah. Um, just a general thought, just from what everyone's been saying, I, I, I guess it, in the context of decolonization, it really depends on what country you're coming from, mm -hmm. and from England. And the cultural or the, the postcolonial legacy is very present in yeah. organizations in general. It's distinctly managerial, white, European, and maintenance of color. This is a clear divide and mostly invisible, as we were saying, mm -hmm. whether it's security or cleaning stuff or cooking stuff. Um, so that's been my experience. And then also a huge barrier to people of color coming into the arts because of that you know, um, unsafe space perception. I think that's good to be extremely valid points because I do think it is dependent on the country that you come from and um, and actually I'm going to use what you just said as, as a uh, time to just uh, position myself because that's my um, cultural formation and political formation within cultural institutions does come from the UK context where the colonial legacy is extremely present and the divide between um, secure contracts and management and um, maintenance is very racially 
um, uh, you, you, you'd be able to see, you know, very distinctly mark it out in, in post-it notes. Um, it's a very clear racial divide. And I guess what that's your position is I'm not from the UK context, but yeah, the Dutch yeah. context is yeah. another similar. humbling reminder that we are coming from a specific context indeed and but definitely class and gender, ability, yeah. um, sexuality. There are so many different axes of difference in hierarchy yeah. that we don't want to erase. Yeah. But we do want to um, talk about colonialism in a way that in the way that it's a racialized hierarchy mm -hmm. um, aimed at capitalist exploitation. So that will be the, the focus of, of this workshop. Mm -hmm. But it's it's very good to be to to realize and to know that there are all kinds of different yeah. axes of difference that are used to exploit people. Mm. Um, I think we're gonna go to the next yeah next slide. Um, so I'm going to talk briefly about the colonial labour division and cultural institutions, which follows on from the conversations that we've been having. So when thinking of uh, why white people are um, often overrepresented in positions of power in cultural institutions in the Netherlands and in the UK, it's useful to, to briefly reflect on the very roots of the cultural institution. So the art gallery and the museum, um, as we know, it was initially... Um, uh, well, it was an aristocratic practice um, in the 1600s, which morphed into a bourgeois movement in the late 1800s. And the purpose of the museum and gallery was to provide access to art and culture as a moralising, ennobling, civilising force so that poor people can emulate bourgeois values. Um, that is, of course, white, heteronormative, European, capitalist values. And we recognise that considerable work has been done by activists and, and other people working within the cultural institution to decolonize and to critique these origins. And some major institutions have distanced themselves from these origins and have attempted to overturn this legacy in discourse and also in some cases in reality. However, this unequal distribution of race in the managerial and maintenance field is a continuation of <coughs> colonial legacy. And, um, of course, it's not only race, but it's how race intersects with class, culture, and, really importantly, citizenship status. So, am I talking too fast? Uh, talking too fast? Is Aisha talking too fast? No. Okay, good. No. Um, so, it's helpful to examine who makes the decisions on how culture is produced, which is the purpose of this um, exercise. We wanted to get people to think about who are the people that are doing the maintenance work and who are the people that are doing the management work. Um, and it's quite interesting to look at this within the colonial framework of the body and the brain divide. So another binary that we need to unlearn and unpick to continue what um, Bini was saying in her really lovely introduction. So the person of colour, especially the POC black body, uh, the body, especially the black body, is seen as only that, a body to carry out hard work to facilitate comfort and the intellectual development of the white European body who possesses culture and mind. And this continuation of care of white people who are seen as the people making culture <coughs> and possessing cultural value and intelligence is, is of course, um, a colonial hangover. So um, can we go to the slide, the next slide? Um, so I want to bring our attention to a really cool artist, Harold Offer, who, play, who plays with this body-mind divide in his performance at Ernst Modern. Now, Offer is a black British visual performance artist, and his work explores how identity, especially black stereotypes, resonate in society. And um, he did a series of performances where he served as a toilet attendant in Tate Modern's toilets. And in doing this, he was exploring the intersection of the black body and the migrant worker, um, walking the line between the invisible and the visible. And um, he stated that his presence there made the punters, made the gallery goers feel quite guilty and awkward, especially because as a presumed migrant worker, he's on a low wage and precarious contract. And... Um, he sort of played with this by breaking out of the typical role of the toilet attendant, which is to recede into the background, and then offer people moisturiser and perfume, <laughs> um, <laughs> which you might which you might get in a in a nightclub. And this was often met with negativity 
because people would uh, just forego washing their hands and get the hell out of there as quickly as possible because they were very uncomfortable with um, any interaction with a person that would, have, would normally be more invisible to them. So they wouldn't wash their hands or dry their hands. Um, so what I thought was really interesting in this instance is that what we have here is a person who, when he performs as an artist, is respected and given a platform. And when he is... Um, so as, as an artist, is given a, a platform. Um, but when he's uh, performing maintenance, he is... Um, people want him to go away. Um, and what I think is important here is how race intersects with his assumed status and class. Um, because whilst racism doesn't necessarily manifest in discourses and policy in the cultural sector, as it did in the same way 50 years ago or 100 years ago, and while assumed, and I say this with massive caveats like genetic or biological um, race markers such as the colour of your skin or facial features, are not overtly linked to intelligence or the ability to produce culture, this is replaced by, uh, by um, cultural markers instead, such as having um, a European cultural capital um, or having a particular dialect or having a particular immigration status. So this neo-racism really naturalises and centralizes non-Western, non-European cultures as culturally incompatible or irrelevant with the dominant culture, especially for people with no citizenship rights. So another um, mild example of this is how Europeanised people, or well, European people with citizenship um, but are, and are working class, adjust their performance of culture by changing their accent or dialect in a cultural institution. So, for example, um, the youth, the curator of youth programmes at Tate Modern in the 2000s reflected that the young working class people she was working with, um, who ran peer-led programming, um, when they were presenting their work to others, they would change their dialect and assume a more middle-class dialect in order to to uh, fit in and conform to the cultural institution. Um, <coughs> so, uh, can we go to the next slide? Oh, uh, maybe the slide after? Oh, yes. Um, so, the intersections of class, culture and citizenship doesn't transcend racism, but rather it buries the old colonial habits of giving European culture a highly more esteemed value. And I kind of feel that these two quotes are quite interesting because um, the first one is from um, a British thinker and philosopher um, who goes as far as to say that substituting socio-historical concept of race for a biological one is simply just to bury the biological concept below the surface. It doesn't transcend it, of course. Um, and Stuart Hall goes on to say that whilst we have closed the door on biological racism, um, well, in discourse only, and we haven't, of course, but, um, you know, in, in rhetoric, um, it still tends to slide around the edge of the veranda and climb in through the pantry window. Um, and, it, and he was saying that it does so through other cultural markers, such as an immigration status or your class. Um, and I would argue that in the cultural sector, this manifests in the work of people doing maintenance, especially those who have precarious contracts. Um, now, can we go back to the previous slide, if that's possible? Um, I don't know if it's possible to click on that link. Maybe. I don't think so. No. We needed to. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I was going to show a very short video. It's like 10 seconds long. But um, it illustrates the, the, what Stuart Hall was saying about racism kind of sliding through and coming back into, through the pantry window. Because <laughs> it was a clip of... Um, LSE cleaners from the London School of Economics who went on strike because um, they were treated very badly and it was a clip of them as a group together talking about how they were not allowed to sit and eat where they clean. So they can clean up the canteen 
but they weren't allowed to sit and eat there because um, they weren't allowed to do that whilst wearing their uniform. They had a 15-minute break. Oh, here we go. that the London School of Economics um, was um, founded by socialists, Fabian socialists, and considers itself a progressive institution. Uh, so this is an extremely clear example where the cultural institution or uh, a university is not practising what it preaches. Um, so what I, I thought this was very useful to kind of look at where we are now. The cultural sector prides itself in being aware of um, hegemony and, and cultural questioning, but it does so without practicing what it preaches. Um, so we have to question what rights do management staff have? What are their working conditions? What types of contracts do they have? Um, in particular, are they part of a union? Are they? Um, are they? Are, is is their way of making? Um, their contracts are more secure um, and are there any common demands between maintenance staff and managerial staff so for example the LSE workers that we just saw here were expected to keep up with the demand, the very neoliberal demand of the LSE expanding taking on more students but not actually um, providing more resources for this so they're expected to clean more spaces with no additional staff um, and this Near like neoliberalisation and expansion of the college will also affect the work of academics too. And not to say that there's a parity in status between how maintenance staff are treated and how the academic staff are treated, but is there a potential for joint action on, based on common demands? And regardless of common demands, like what does solidarity look like? So that's the question I'm going to end on. So I had a bit prepared about... Uh, statistics, just to give you a little bit of background in the bigger patterns in Dutch society at least when it comes to race and how it affects, how it works in education and in the labor market. But uh, because we're short on time, I would like to skip that. And um, and actually, if, if it's okay with you also, yeah. if we just move on to the culture fun, function of culture institutions. Sure. Yeah. Sure. sure. Oh, okay. Um, so, yes. Okay, so, um, I mean, this is a question I'm sure m m most of us have been engaged with. Um, why is representation and inclusion in the cultural sector important? Um, and um, I think it's important to kind of, th in thinking about the colonial legacy uh, that cultural institutions have tried to overturn some of them at least there are places like Casco that exist um, it's not an institution in that kind of common sense but there, in, 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 in uh, yeah, traditional sense but there are, there are galleries and, and collectives and institutions that are pushing for um, not just decolonisation but critiquing hegemony um, and in fact, in the mid-20th century, like in the 1968 moment, galleries across Europe, not all of them, but some, became very different spaces where artists addressed uh, political issues and where political dialogues took place. Radical, place, uh, radical practices took place. 
um, where artists worked with minoritised communities to give space and form projects and events that were based on their values, their urgencies and their cultures. And there was an attempt between an alignment between grassroots movements and gallery practices. Um, it was an attempt to perform what we call cultural democracy. So that's when a person or group potentially appraises and utilises the institution and its contents according to their own beliefs, wants and needs. So for an example of cultural democracy, um, the Whitechapel Gallery in London in the 60s and 70s also sought to pragmatically respond to the needs of their community, of their um, very working class Bengali community that they were situated within. So they wrote letters to local schools to ask how they can offer the gallery as a space to address any problems or needs of their, of their community. Um, so, yeah, the letter included the sentence, uh, to let me know of any particular problems that exist in an art class or study group to see if we can help solve them. Mm. And then through consultation, they attempted to set up a fashion business using the gallery space to produce innovative clothing to address the unemployment problem in the local Bengali community. Um, and the subtext of this was to impact positive change in a multicultural society. And in their words, if the arts and education are to be an effort to build a fully multicultural society, they must build... Quick, no, sure. Oh, sorry. Yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, I'll do this, so... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so, uh, so I'll go back. So through consultation, they attempted to set up a fashion business using the gallery space to produce interesting, uh, innovative clothing to address the unemployment problem in the local Bengali community. So, um, and this was to impact positive change in, in their area. Um, uh, another example is a project in 1995 at Tate, um, which worked with people who were homeless and had complex issues. And um, the artist that worked from Tate that worked with this group really spent a lot of time with this group to understand their specific needs of that particular community and then worked with them to build a project around their needs which were a cathartic release and also to raise literacy skills. So as well as responding to practical needs, galleries became a place to experiment with uh, and explore different ideas and became, like, they became a host to radical feminist and Marxist dialogues and thoughts. Um, a place that gave an opportunity to raise questions and to gain challenge, enhance and reframe knowledge. So I'm just, I mean, the question that we were sort of really wanting to grapple with is that if institutions can be the space and want to be the space where important dialogues are taking place, and where culture is produced, expressed, shared, celebrated. What does it say when the people who are making the decisions at the top generally are the ones who culturally, socio-culturally have the most privilege? And how decolonial is it, or how decolonial is an institution if they continue to invisibilise their maintenance staff? So I'm going to hand over yeah. to you. Cool. All right, cool. Are there any, before we sort of move on, we're going to do a sort of, conversation in groups after this, but maybe anybody wants to respond to what Aisha has, has shared just now? Okay. In that case, I would like you to, in your groups, I would like to invite you to um, discuss um, the following question. Um, what is the potential of, of a decolonial institution? But maybe before we do that, I would like you to maybe think about, in your situation, who is it that your organization, or where you go to school at, for mm. example, who does it serve? <coughs> who makes the decisions, and who does it serve? So who are the students? Who is the public that comes? Is there, is there a hierarchy there? For example, you were mentioning class, not so much race, but class. So is there a privileged group that comes and consumes or makes culture? Mm. And um, if so, what would, the, what would your institution perhaps do or what kind of impact would it have if it would actually target more marginalized groups in the surroundings of that institution. So Aisha gave the example of the Bengali community around this one gallery. Um, 
that's quite an unusual thing to happen. What would happen? What is the, what was the what would the impact be or the potential be of your organization if it would actually target marginalized communities? And you can share thoughts and um, sort of questions around that with your group, and then come back and we'll discuss it all together. <laughs> There's no definitive answer that I see you shaking your head. It's, it's a very huge question, and, and we're short on time. So it's just to sort of help us get the conversation going and um, get sort of like a thought train rolling, and then you can discuss it afterwards with your friends and your colleagues and all the people that you like discussing these types of questions with. Um, so from somebody that hasn't spoken yet, um, does anybody want to share the thoughts, the collective thoughts that your group has come up with, or maybe even just your individual thoughts? That's also okay. For example, let's see, uh, this group? Ah, yes, go ahead. Um, so we kind of thought that, of course, to use the word target and minorities, it's like completely wrong language. Um, to change anything, really, you have to ask what is the role, the social role, the, the social function of the cultural institution in society. Yeah. So I think any reverse mm. order of like that's the institution and how we can diversify it just means mm. the same kind of colonial, slightly patronizing yeah, attitudes yeah. of like, you are so important, why don't you get it? So I think there has to be really kind of fundamental questioning of like what is the function of, of, the, of the cultural institution. And then to give a kind of simple example, because it's such a big question. Um, well, like I was uh, mentioning uh, MIMA in Middlesbrough, the museum, um, kind of quite an important regional museum, and the uh, management has decided just to reverse the relationship between the collection and the city. Within a traditional institution, there was the collection, and you kind of brainstorm endlessly how you can diversify the audience who comes to see the collection. They were just reversing um, the relationship and saying, the collection is simply there to serve the city and let's ask people what values they see in it, how they want to use it. So it's a very, very simple but fundamental change of relationships between your audience and your cultural capital as an organization. And we thought that has to be the first question. Yes, yes absolutely. Does anybody want to share, respond to this or share some thoughts of their own? <coughs> Maybe I have a comment somehow because yes. the way you ended is your audience and the institution. No, it was the city and the institution. Ah, okay. So the city, the, where is the audience? This the, in the institution. <laughs> this, <Right>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because that's also what I'm questioning on many levels um, is the position of the institution from the city, for instance. Right? I mean, does the institution belong to the city? And if that's the case, then why most institutions function based on the interest of the director, but not the city, mm -hmm. and the, and the public? You know what I mean? I think this question that you raised is a fundamental one. And actually, when, us, when we were thinking about how we wanted to um, sort of have this conversation with you all today, it was really the, the fundamental question. Who does, what is the function of cultural institutions at the moment within the society as it is right now, a racialized, gendered, etc., hierarchical society based on binaries, and how can you change that function, question that function and change that function of cultural institutions so, so that you can actually serve justice and more empathetic and equal relationships with each other uh, in, on a societal level so that at the moment, I think many cultural institutions, which is the reason why we went through these sort of like messy exercises with you, we find an experience that many cultural institutions are um, just reproducing yeah. a type of culture making and cultural culture valuing that is um, very much just based on one, you know, often uh, privileged, um, powerful group. Mm -hmm. And we're saying cultural institutions can be places where creativity and um, sort of um, 
change, cultural change, can happen? And what does that demand of cultural institutions when they become places that actually uh, want to serve that function? So addressing colonial trauma and colonial hierarchies and actually serving um, society on a, on a larger level and instead of only reproducing hierarchy uh, in different ways. And that's where the question came from. What is the potential of decolonial or critical or unlearning? I mean, all kinds of words that you can use. What is the potential then of that type of institution? But I recognize that in the setup of this, uh, of, of the workshop until now, we might not have set you up to actually dive into the question in the way that we meant to. So, um, yes? So it sounds a brief experience of that. Um, I was in LA at the time of the Trump election, and um, it was incredible to see the response of all the galleries in the city pretty much opened up as space to mobilize community and had non-violent communication workshops, um, making art during fascism like, sessions, and so the potential there was profound to actually have spaces for people to gather and organize, and I've never experienced that um, in a different time, but I think that kind of reference to what you're yeah. Does any thank you? Anybody else want to share some thoughts related or unrelated to these questions? Um, yes. Maybe a little bit unrelated, but I just like to bring um, differences differences between museums and public art institutions mm -hmm. and the non-public independent art institutions. So, just as a disclaimer, for instance, Casco. Uh, some of us have a permanent contract, but that doesn't mean anything in terms of security. Mm -hmm. As uh, like as funding cut, contract yeah. will stop, mm -hmm. and there is no labor prote protection, and there is no uh, pension. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one. And the second one is like also thinking of in terms of this um, the democratic, what uh, cultural democracy, that like. Uh, how we deal with a quality of art and then distribution of wealth. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of also like different kinds of artists, different kinds of artistic production. And there we have many like also case of successful artists uh, of uh, different race than white European, in, even in European contexts. Mm -hmm. I just come to think of these at this moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yes? Maybe it's, uh, it's a bit of a, a, a comment, and uh, uh, maybe just trying to add a bit of a nuance also in terms of uh, socio-geographic divisions within Europe. Mm -hmm. Like when we are talking about European culture, we also need to understand that this, uh, that this is sometimes used to diminish the work of left-leaning organizations in places like Hungary, Ukraine, Poland, or different fascist, uh, basically in a different fascist uh, type of setting. Yeah. So like, you know, like, uh, uh, for example, Hungarian authoritarians uh, basically uh, target kind of like left-leaning organizations by calling them almost like traitors of the nation when they are uh, particularly for spreading kind of European values or something like that. Mm -hmm. The same is in Russia and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. It is not to undermine what you've said, it's just like to add yeah, additional yeah, nuance, yeah, but yeah. it's very also context-oriented, you know, but some uh, values might be uh, which we take for granted in, uh, in a country like here, might be actually um, used in a very diminutive, not diminutive, it might, might be used as an actually accusation. Mm -hmm. You know, but you have this, for example, that you are, uh, like in Hungary, it is now uh, a uh, criminal offense to help uh, migrants. Mm -hmm. Or it is like the organizations basically are labeled if they are taking uh, Soros money. Mm -hmm. Or Soros is painted as a uh, Jewish liberal kind of almost a terrorist. Yeah. You know, it's very... It's the same in Russia, or like if you are like doing anything like left-leaning or European in Kiev, you might be in uh, you might be under threat uh, of attack of like Ukrainian yeah. fascists. Basically, guys who are also fighting in the 
East, and then they might, uh, yeah, it was just an exhibition in Warsaw, uh, organized by a group of Ukrainian curators who showed a couple of uh, um, charts and paintings that they exhibited which related to the communist past of uh, Ukraine, and then you could see just uh, basically bullets, uh, bullet uh, holes in this, uh, in this painting, because the guys, you know, the fascists entered and uh, smashed the uh, smashed this um, depiction. You know, so it's it's. I think it's like you know, with this European stuff. It's uh, and for them, for example, when they uh, when they uh, when they uh, we had also a kind of like last weekend a discussion about organizing a year of anti-fascist action in Poland. And these guys from uh, the, from Kiev came and said, yeah, we need European solidarity, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, because if you do not have European solidarity, we cannot do anything in Kiev. We need this type of outside influence, which is also related for them to a kind of uh, to European uh, values as they see them, in a sense. But they see them obviously different uh, from a, from a perspective, differently from a perspective of Ukraine. In a sense, they might say uh, that you know equality, minority rights, stuff like this. That's how they understand you know European values. Even though in our context it might be this type of legacy might be so, or like in context here, might be so kind of uh, embedded in the context of uh, colonialism that you, uh, that people do have a justified distance to uh, accepting them mm -hmm. yeah. at the face value. You know, so yeah. like just uh, yeah. to add a bit of a nuance yeah. to, uh, yeah. to this uh, discussion. Do you want? Does anybody want to? I would say we have about ten minutes. Ten minutes. Ten minutes. That we just go on with this discussion. We had some other stuff planned, but um, this question of um, what is the function of cultural institutions um, is a really important one. I mean, I would also like to think about how could you practically actually start. Um, unlearning maintenance in, in your own setting. Mm. We might get to that. But does anybody want to um, share some thoughts or questions or criticism or whatever on this question of what the function of cultural institution is? Perhaps in an ideal world? I mean, going back to what Catherine had mentioned <laughs> in our discussion, in response to this question of potential and the function, the fundamental function of cultural institutions. This is kind of old-fashioned, but it, like you go back to this idea of the purpose of for, for the sort of to reproduce bourgeois values. It was supposed to be this space, right, where you sort of make the communist census, you know, you represent it in that space. But to put forward any of this as like a function in your programming or representation through art or you know discursive programs, publications or whatever, really cannot start until that communist census is reflected in the structure of the organization. And so you know that's kind of where we're going to go next in our discussion before we are moving on. And so. I mean, with that fundamental questioning, I think with any of these initiatives of being colonized or institution, it has to start with that representation in the structure of the institution as well. Um, Absolutely. Which institution do you talk about then? About um, oh, in our discussion? Yeah. Um, well, I, I hadn't mentioned the name of this institution, oh, okay. but it's a big museum well, so in New York called the Queen's Museum, where um, they had brought in uh, community organizers actually to be part of the program staff, or the programming staff, in order to develop programs that would target these marginal communities in the Queen's area. But um, I had some... Uh, concerns or misgivings about this kind of programming in a way, even though I thought it was laudable that they had integrated community organizers and activists into the permanent staff of the museum. Um, the, the concern there is the space, the function, it, it suddenly became a place for social services. And I was worried in, 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 in spite of that that it would sort of weaken the purpose or the, the, the strength of, of existing institutions and organizations that already serve those communities, except with maybe better design or something. Better skills <laughs> you know? as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sorry, I didn't want to talk too much. No, that's okay. I mean, I think that's, that's a really important case, and which is the reason why 
uh, we're talking about maintenance because yes, we did ask you the question, what would an institution look like that would actually serve marginalized communities? And that's not a question to say, um, how can you um, take out some money to appoint somebody for a temp on a temporary basis so that they can do you know, a cute little project or maybe even put somebody on permanent staff and then you can do sort of like almost char charity cultural work on the side. You know, what, 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 what would it look like if um, the people that are at the bottom of an organization that are only there, um, maybe not even meant to be seen, are only there to do the maintenance work, would actually do content work, would actually, you know, have not only be on the staff, but actually be, uh, what if their culture would have the same value as Western European um, you know, I, I, ideas and culture, and and that would be an interesting, I think, mm -hmm. interesting place. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I don't know. I think that's really where the, if I was a curator, which I'm not, I think that's where the curatorial challenge is. Yes. And so it's not about bringing people in and programming together, it's also for those who understand the history of that cultural capital to maybe come up with a few more ideas, how we can use it, yeah? And now I'm going to bore Kuba to death <laughs> by saying, of course, it's this idea of like art and spectatorship and shifting it to a usership of art. And then things become very simple, yeah? It, at MIMA, again, sort of using example, they have an amazing ceramics collection. No one is saying you shouldn't show this collection anymore, you shouldn't use it anymore. Just use it differently, yeah? So use the collection which has colonial history, blah, 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 link it maybe to a working class history in the city, link it to how other people make pots and link it to how everybody's using pots. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you have a very kind of open field of working with the legacy, but also opening it up and let everybody come in as not just a, someone who needs to be educated, but mm -hmm. someone who's using those things and maybe is learning, unlearning. So I think it's really a curatorial challenge, mm -hmm. um, which because so many curators thinking like, that's the exhibition, that's the outreach. You know, it's like, ugh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, in if, if in I, if, just, perhaps, just, perhaps somebody else would like to also yeah. contribute. Thank you. Does anybody else want to contribute? <laughs> yes. Um, I would just say, as a, to expand on the curatorial question, that I think it's also a question for everyone. It's not just to pass the buck to, well, not pass the buck, pass the buck, no, but it's not between to me, but um, more like it, it's, it's sort of the purpose of today, right? Like to think at all levels. And I think the point you make about if the maintenance people were to be brought into programming is a really interesting one to think through what then programming would look like. Because mm -hmm. yeah. it goes back to what Bina was saying what is the value? Which which work and which sorts of art and which sorts of artistic practices also ways of making are valued and are considered what type of worth is if somebody comes in if somebody is from um, Somalia okay a Somali cleaner a woman cleaner a Muslim woman wearing a veil she only cleans and what if suddenly she would be there making I don't know woodworking because maybe she's learned woodworking you know back in her country or maybe she's still doing it and you know what would it look like if we wouldn't say oh that's a very cute little you know ethnographic little thing that you're making but what if it if she were taken seriously as an artist in that work, and what would it look like? What would the relationships look like between her and her colleagues? And what would it look like if she could come in and do that type of work? How would she feel about it? How would other people who are not used to it feel about it? I mean, it's a very interesting thing to think about, uh, and different use of the space. Um, um, does anybody? Yes. I mean, I was um, over the last five years. I was part of a very small, very underfunded uh, artist-run organization where we also tried to kind of get in, uh, like not the typical art um, audience. We, uh, we worked with a group of uh, Somali women who were exhibiting at the, at the organization, and we caught ourselves very often where we kind of um, where we had this kind of argument that we had to. Um, do like have exhibition that kind of more fall into the kind of classical um, art production, like an exhibition with two or three positions, because we were kind of worried that we would lose our funding. So I mean, this also has to do with uh, the funding situation and what the funders kind of expect from artist organizations, what they would kind of deliver. So and I think that that's also that's a very important part of. Um, 
kind of the, the notion of what art is and what art supposed to kind of, or what art organizations are supposed to deliver is, has to do with the funding structure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, luckily there is a session on that. <laughs> I see Ben and Yang looking at you. <laughs> there is going to be opportunity to think about that and to share strategies also because smart strategizing, mm -hmm. smart use of language, mm -hmm. I think is very key in this. And there is always a risk to lose money when you yeah. start to become too radical. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just worried a little bit about the, the invitation. Um, and how that can easily slip into patronizing, where you're inviting the Somali woman to do it <coughs> and maybe not treating her as a curator and only once or twice, and rather maybe we focus on what we already do, which is art. Maybe our community is here and we deal with artists and the working conditions of artists. And of course, maintenance stuff is important, um, but I, I, I worry about the slippage Mm -hmm. um, to kind of like step outside of our already inherent community that has many problems, <laughs> right? To then go to the social, you know, the 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 immigrant is there is an immigrant artist. Mm -hmm. We we don't need to step that far out. Even if we stay within like the bounds of art, we will find things to do that can actually like um, maybe be a little bit more. Meaningful might be the wrong word, mm -hmm. but yeah, I, 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 I doable. Yeah, doable. Mm -hmm. um, I just worry when artists try to like, mm -hmm. or art people try to solve social things. We do it very. Mm -hmm. We do it as a good art project, but mm -hmm. maybe not as a. Sometimes we make things worse by trying to solve. Maybe not worse, but <laughs> we could just like deal with the problems we have, which are many. I think what we would like to see is that the people that are often doing maintenance work, whether they be racialized to do that, whether they be in a class position or a citizen status, uh, citizenship status, where they often have to do that type of work, which is, I mean, it's useful and it's necessary. Um, how can we change the structure and the values of cultural institutions so that people are, that are often um, confined to doing um, um, only maintenance work can also um, do also knowledge production in, yes, new, do knowledge production in cultural institutions. But I really recommend what you say in terms of the slippage and in terms of the risk of tokenization. Um, but I hope that the, the sort of the, the push for decolonizing your structure and re-examining the values that you have around what is art, who makes art, and who makes the decisions in your cultural institutions, those are the questions that we would like to, to give to you. Okay, that's time. I'm so sorry. It's time. Thank you so much for watching.